Welcome to Welcome to Florida. I'm your hostess, Hallie Reed. Uh, first of all, apologies. I meant to get this episode out a couple weeks ago, but then I got caught up in a really cool and really important research project that hopefully will be the subject of a future episode. So anyway, on to the episode. Anyway, if you're from Tampa, you're probably familiar with Davis Islands. It's two islands, one big and one little off of downtown. Tampa General Hospital is on D- Davis Islands, as is Peter O'Knight Airport, and there's a yacht basin and a very nice dog park and a dog beach. So well some dog non-dog parks, but we don't care about those. One of my favorite little tea shops is down on Davis Islands, and when I say that, I mean please sponsor me. But Davis Islands is mostly residential, and it's some of Tampa's nicest real estate. Like, for real, I would not mind living on Davis Islands. A lot of our sports stars live there. Uh, Derek Jeter tore down three very large houses and built one obscene mega mansion that he later rented out to Tom Brady and Giselle when they moved to Tampa. But they're not living there anymore because people kept boating up to their backyard. But there's also some more generally middle class and affordable stuff there well, but like bougie middle class. So, you know, it's just a nice place to live. I always see people walking their dogs whenever I go to Davis Islands. What a lot of people don't know is that the islands have an absolutely insane origin story full of scandal and bankruptcy and all kinds of juicy shit, and that the islands weren't even always there. They started out as two undeveloped, low-lying, and swampy sandbar mudflats where you couldn't build anything. They were called Big Grassy Key and Little Grassy Key. A real estate developer by the name of David P. Davis had the idea of transforming the islands by dredging up sand from the bottom of Tampa Bay and then turning them into a nice place, to the nice place we know them as today. Davis often gets called Tampa's own Jay Gatsby, and you can probably guess where this is going. David Paul Davis was born November 29, 1885, in the town of Green Cove Springs. His father, George Riley Davis, was a steamboat operator on the St. Johns River. His mother, Gertrude, was born in Cuba, but moved with her family to Jacksonville and married George in 1882. In 1894, two freezes devastated the citrus industry, which knocked out George's steamboat business and caused them to move the family down to Tampa. Now, at the time, Tampa's population is booming because of the completion of Henry B. Plant's railroad. David started working at the age of 16, first as a clerk at the McFarland and Rainey Law Firm, and then as a mate aboard his father's ship. In 1904, he got a job as a salesman for the Knight and Wall Hardware Company. In 1906, the Army Corps of Engineers used dredging to enlarge a portion of Little Grassy Key. At the time, they called it Seddon Island, but now we call it Harbor Island. This is probably where Davis got the idea of using dredging to build up the two islands, although it would still be a while before he could do it. His life through the 1910s is kind of hard to track. He traveled around, showing up in New York City and Panama and then Jacksonville, mostly working as a salesman. On November 11, 1915, he married a young woman named Marjorie H. Merritt, and soon they had a son. In 1919, the real estate boom that would soon define Florida in the 1920s had begun, and the Davis family went down to Miami, where David entered the real estate business. The 1920s real estate boom is a very interesting time in Florida history. It was created by a lot of different factors all coming together at the right time in the right place. Land in Florida has always been very cheap, mostly because for a very long time is inaccessible and uninhabitable and swampy and shitty and full of alligators and mosquitoes and yellow fever and hurricanes and shit trying to kill you. In the 1890s, railroad developers like Henry Flagler and Henry Plant had made the state a lot more accessible and it became a popular destination for the upper class. After World War I, the American middle class expanded rapidly. Land drainage and clearing technology helped build new highways all across Florida, and these newly middle class families could easily buy an automobile and travel all over the state. 
real estate salesmen of this era painted Florida as this new affordable paradise where families and businesses could flourish. So naturally, lots of people moved here. And of course, there were scams. Oh my God, the scams. My favorite image from the era is the cover of a Judge magazine with a flapper and a sharp white suit, which is basically how I want to dress all the time, sitting on a Florida real estate sign with a sold sticker slapped across it. But the sign is in the middle of some water and the flapper is looking down in disdain. The most common scam of the era was to sell worthless land that was too swampy to develop or sometimes just it was straight up underwater. The prices were jacked up way above the land's value, but they were still comparatively very cheap and then sold sight unseen to northerners who were looking to develop and get rich quick. A lot of these scams were just straight up Ponzi schemes that involved no land at all. In fact, Charles Ponzi himself was once a waiter here in Tampa, which has nothing to do with any of his financial crimes in Boston. I just thought it was a neat fact. One of the biggest ways of selling land in Florida was through the use of quote-unquote binders. Real estate lots would be purchased with a 30-day contract or binder for 10% of the total cost and then sold again and again with the price increasing each time. The person who had possession of the land at the end of the 30 days was stuck paying it off for the rest of it. Davis started out as one of hundreds of Miami real estate brokers, but he was able to distinguish himself pretty quickly. Through the use of binders and other complicated dealings, Davis came to be worth about $1 million in real estate, but he had very little cash on hand. But he was good at what he did. His first major development was a business district called Commercial Biltmore. He bought a, what was called a languishing property and revitalized the infrastructure and redeveloped the buildings and made it profitable. In 1922, Davis was dealt a massive blow when his beloved wife, Marjorie, died after giving birth to their second child. Davis was devastated by her death in ways that would continue to fuck him up for years to come, but he never let it affect his work. This is when he really starts living it up, drinking and partying. He spent very little time grieving, apparently, because not long after this, he begins dating his mistress, Lucille Zaring. Lucille herself is a pretty fascinating figure. According to legend, she is one of Max Sennett's bathing beauties. They're sort of the playboy bunnies of the 20s. They're glamorous, beautiful women who appear in skimpy bathing suits at movie premieres and in cheesecake pinups to promote movies. Granted, this is the 1920s, so their bathing suits would probably be considered very modest and kind of a boner kill today. But for the 20s, they were very scandalous. Now, there are people who are dedicated to identifying the bathing beauties and documenting their lies, and no one has found evidence that Lucille Zering was among them. I don't know where the idea that she was one would come from if she wasn't, but who knows. She was still married when she met Davis and remained married until 1925, all while carrying on an affair with him. Even though Davis was seeing tremendous success in Miami, he was one of many developers there, and Davis knew that in the long term, he couldn't compete with the bigger names in the city. About this time, he heard of a plan from a Tampa real estate developer, Berks E. Hamner, about developing the mudflats in Tampa Bay with sand that had been dug up from the bottom of the bay bay when it was deepened to allow more shipping traffic. Hamner had it all planned out, but he was too busy with his other developments to see it through. In 1924, Davis and his two boys left Miami for Tampa. Davis began meeting with the city leaders to purchase the two islands. The Tampa Tribune covered the meetings religiously. There's a lot of back and forth and deal making going on, and I'll be frank, the details of it are really boring. There are a number of people with homes on Bayshore Boulevard, which is Tampa's priciest real estate because it's right on Tampa Bay. 
It's where all the millionaires live in their mansions. To give you some kind of perspective on exactly what kind of millionaire lives there, Paula White, the, the evangelical prosperity gospel megachurch charlatan slash grifter who was Donald Trump's quote unquote spiritual advisor, lives on Bayshore. Because, you know, when Jesus said on Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God damn it. He meant that pastors should be millionaires with houses on Bayshore. But that's just me being salty. Now, the people who owned houses on Bayshore in 1924 complained that the development of the islands would obstruct their view of Tampa Bay, which, to be honest, is a pretty valid complaint, given that one of the biggest reasons to build a ridiculously expensive house on Bayshore is this incredible view of the bay. In the end, Davis won out and was able to buy both the property and be given permission to development. Part of what made this possible was a daily advertising campaign in the Tampa Tribune with a daily full-page ads telling readers about the progress of the negotiations and what a fantastic place Davis Islands will be once it's completed. The idea of marketing was still a very novel concept, but clearly Davis saw its potential and knew how to make a sales pitch. Overall, the city leaders were very supportive of the idea of building the islands. The final contract described the development as, quote, high-class residential subdivision. The first thing to do was to build a temporary bridge for easy access to the islands. When this was completed, Davis, his business partner, A.Y. Milam, and two-year-old David P. Davis Jr. made a big show of crossing the bridge and being the first people to set foot on Davis Islands, with pictures appearing in the Tampa Tribune. As construction workers fled the island, Davis purchased a building on 502 North Franklin Street to act as his sales office. The building had once been home to a beloved candy shop called Drowdy's Corner, where as a child, Davis had often stared longingly at the candy in the window. In the center of the office was a 40 by 20 foot 3D model of the development, all meticulously planned and laid out. The basic of layout of the island is that Davis Boulevard runs down the middle and the street names descending alphabetically from north to south are all named after islands or bodies of water, such as Adriatic, Bosporus, Jamaica, Lucerne, and Martinique. The streets and sidewalks are wide and meant for both pedestrians and automobiles. There would be a five-acre city park named Marjorie Park for Davis's beloved wife, complete with a tennis court, a Roman pool, and a yacht basin. To top it all off, on top of his sales office, he put a spectacular electric sign made with light bulbs, brilliantly spelling out Davis Islands. When lots finally opened up for sale, crowds rushed to buy. Some spent as long as 40 hours in line to buy land that hadn't even been built yet. Of course, most of this land was sold as binders that would immediately be resold, even right there in the sales office. Davis kept up the circus-like atmosphere and continued marketing stunts. He had a fleet of buses emblazoned with Davis Islands that would bring in prospective buyers from St. Petersburg and Sarasota. There were boat races, airplane exhibitions and stunts, tennis tournaments, and golf lessons from professionals. One of the biggest stunts was when Olympic swimmer Helen Wainwright swam a lap around the islands. Now, According to legend, on New Year's Eve 1924, Davis was partying up with his friends when he announced that not only would he be getting married in the new year, he'd marry the Gasparilla Queen. For those of you who don't know, Gasparilla is Tampa's annual pirate parade, sort of like Mardi, Mardi Gras. Pirates invade the city, there's a parade, they throw around a lot of plastic beads, there's a shitload of alcohol, everybody has fun. 
It's also accompanied by an annual ball where all of Tampa's rich and powerful gather to be rich and powerful. Back in the day, it was the biggest high society event in Tampa, and to be named the Gasparilla Queen was a very big fucking deal. In 1925, the queen was a pretty young woman named Elizabeth Nelson. Eight months later, in October 1925, she and David P. Davis got married. Now, it seems likely that Davis may have actually known that Elizabeth was going to be named Queen, and they may have already been in some kind of a relationship, but he also could have just known at this point he was rich enough that he could easily get just about any pretty young woman 15 years his junior to marry him. They got married on October 10th at the Presbyterian Manse in Clearwater. The wedding was said to be a surprise to both of their families, and then they got divorced on November 4th. This was a time when Davis's drinking had really started to take a toll on him personally. It never affected his work, but on his own time, he was a melancholy drunk who treated his new wife like shit. He put her divorce papers in a stack of regular paperwork that she needed to sign for D.P. Davis Properties, and she signed it without realizing what it was. When she found out what she'd just done, she went on with the divorce proceedings. The judge granted the divorce on, quote, habitual intemperance, that is, he was drunk all the time. But then they got married again on December 11th. According to a 1971 interview with Milton Davis, the real reason Davis was doing all this was to make Lucille Zaring jealous, because stable and healthy relationships are for poor people, apparently. Lucille was living with her husband in Los Angeles, and Davis just wasn't over it. Personal drama aside, business was booming, so it only seemed natural that Davis would seek to expand. He set his eyes on St. Augustine. Once all of the lots on Davis Island were sold, Davis announced a plan to build on St. Augustine's Anastasia Island. The plan was similar to Davis Island, but bigger, better, and fancier. He pledged to spend $60 million on the project, which would include a $1.5 million hotel, a $250,000 country club, a yacht club, a Roman pool, and a casino, as well as an 18-hole golf course. Now, St. Augustine is an old city, having been founded in 1565. It's the oldest city in the U.S. Its most iconic attraction is the Castillo de San Marcos, a giant stone fort built between 1672 and 1695. Fitting Davis's ultra-modern dream into this old city would be a massive undertaking. In spite of the challenges, sales went forwards, and things initially seemed to be going very well. In the first 100 days of sales, Davis bragged that he had sold $50 million. This, however, was only in the total value of the land being purchased. Because buyers were only paying for a very small down payment, very little money was actually making its way to Davis and his company. In spite of the slow cash flow, Davis pressed on with his ambitious goals, and on Halloween 1925, he signed a dredging contract to fill in 13 million cubic feet of land. If any of this was going to succeed, it was absolutely crucial that Davis keep making money and lots of it. On the night between November 30th and December 1st, 1925, a tropical storm rolled over Tampa, and a bunkhouse for the black laborers who were working on Davis Island collapsed. One of the survivors, Alva Wilson, said, I was awakened by the wind whistling around the corner of the building downstairs where I slept. I got up and started to put my clothes on. I was about half-dressed when an extra strong gust of wind hit the bunkhouse and I heard the timbers creak and began to give. I felt the walls begin to collapse and I ran out the front door, shouting at the others to get out that the building was falling in. As I reached a place of safety, I heard a terrible splintering sound. I looked around in time to see the front of the building collapse. 10 to 15 died and 38 were injured. 
A tropical storm itself was the deadliest tropical storm in history to never become a hurricane, with as many as 73 casualties, mostly at sea. I've tried to find the names of the dead, but I've only been able to find a few. The city of Tampa at large was quick to forget about this tragedy because the newspapers never mentioned it again. The constant explosive growth that Davis depended on simply wasn't sustainable. By 1926, the Florida real estate market was so flooded with scams that northern banks began to refuse to grant loans and mortgages to Florida firms. In 1925, the Florida East Coast Railroad line temporarily stopped shipments into Florida due to maintenance work, putting a major strain on construction material shipments. In January 1926, the Prince Valdemar sank in the Biscayne Bay shipping channel, completely blocking it. Then, in September, a massive hurricane swept over Miami, causing millions of dollars of damage and killing over 100 people. Soon, people began realizing that there's a reason that Florida had remained largely uninhabited throughout most of its history. With most of its supplies going to Davis Shores, construction work on Davis Island slowed. A full-page newspaper ad from May 1926 shows the progress being made on the island. The islands themselves are only halfway completed, and the 20 or so major buildings there are still under construction. The main roads are paved, but the ground is still mostly sand, with little in the way of plant life. Perhaps an epic work in progress, but still very far from the residential paradise that Davis had promised. By the end of 1926, Davis had no choice but to sell Davis Islands. Giving up on the islands was simply not an option for the city of Tampa and the many investors who had put a lot of money into seeing the islands succeed. The islands were soon purchased by a Boston engineering firm by the name of Stone and Webster. Even with the money he had made from the sale of Davis Islands, Davis didn't have enough money to continue with Davis Shores. A full-page newspaper ad from May 1926 shows the progress being made on the islands. The islands themselves are only halfway completed, and the 20 or so major buildings there are still under construction. The main roads are paved, but the ground is still mostly sand with very little in the way of, gla of grass or plant life. Perhaps an epic work in progress, but very far from the In the inquest afterwards, it was found that Davis had taken out a $300,000 life insurance policy from Victory National Life Insurance, which had been founded by Sumter Lowry of Lowry Park fame. Davis had several other life insurance policies on top of that. When Lowry inv investigated his death, a steward who had been positioned outside of Davis's room all night said that Davis had been drinking and that he heard Davis and Zaring arguing and then Zaring rushed out of the room saying there had been an accident. The steward would later go on and change his story somewhat, saying that he'd heard Davis saying, I can go on living or end it. I can make money or spend it. It all depends on you, which was then followed by a loud splash. Eventually, Zaring herself would claim that Davis was sweating in a large porthole and slipped. She screamed and tried to grab his leg, but the storm outside blew him away. Delaney and Montaigne, the lawyer and PR guy, claimed that Davis was entertaining Lucille in his room by pretending to fall out of the porthole and accidentally slipped. They all said that Lucille was just a random woman that had Davis had happened to meet on the bait. So make of that what you will. Now, of course, there's a lot you can take away from these stories. The Majestic did indeed have large portholes that a man with a slight figure could have slipped through on accident. Lucille Zaring could have finally had enough of his shit and just pushed him. He might have also faked his own death. But in the end, the most likely answer is that Davis jumped. In 2004, historian Rodney Kite Powell, whose writing made up most of my research for this episode, managed to track down George Davis, who's then in his 80s, but could still remember the night his father went overboard. 
He was asleep in his cabin when it happened, but was awoken and told that his father had fallen overboard. He believed that his father had killed himself. While Davis was still officially considered missing, Lucille took George on to Paris and gave him a tour there. I remember going to the Eiffel Tower, he said. I remember going to Napoleon's tomb. We went to the Moulin Rouge, which was a topless type place. I was impressed by that. Now, remember, he was 10 at the time. Eventually, Elizabeth Davis took custody of George and took him back to Tampa. Back in the States, the mysterious death of a millionaire developer with his mistress at his side was needless to say huge news. Tabloids ran special about the scandal and investigated every angle of it. At one point, Lucille allowed the American Weekly to print two letters that Davis had allegedly sent her. In the letters, Davis is morose and lovesick, referring to Zaring as honey, love, dearest, darling, sweetheart. He expressed his disappointment over a business deal that didn't go through, as it meant that he wouldn't be able to marry her like he'd planned. But he still showed hope and a desire to live. As soon as this is over, all signed up, etc. I'm coming to my darling, and nothing shall part us. Oh, I'll be so happy. I can't wait. At the end of the article, Zaring says, Things are just breaking right for him. Why would he commit suicide? He didn't, of course. He wasn't drunk, either. He didn't rank very little. Just to reiterate, he was a notorious alcoholic. Now, I'm going to go on a little aside and say that David P. Davis wasn't the only Tampa Bay Area millionaire real estate developer to be involved in a mysterious death. I happened to come across this story while I was researching a completely unrelated series of murders. That's what I love about Florida. It's like a rushing nesting doll of batshit insanity. You You open one up and a whole bunch of crazy shit falls out. Anyway... Eugene M. Elliott was a real estate developer whose biggest project was that he helped finance the Gandhi Bridge, which is the first bridge to cover old Tampa Bay and turn what was a several hour long trip around the bay into a half hour trip across the bay. Before landing in Tampa in 1908, Elliott was indicted in Chicago for running a fraudulent employment agency. Somehow he ended up in St. Petersburg, and in 1922, George S. Gandy Sr. hired him as a promoter for the big fancy bridge he wanted to sell. In Elliott's defense, he did a pretty good job, and he played a huge role in securing the funding to get the bridge built, securing the million dollars he needed in just 110 days. According to historian Raymond Arsenal, when Gandy told him that the construction would begin soon, Elliott gasped and said, what? You're not actually going to build, are you? Now, apparently he'd done all this believing that he was selling a bridge that would never get built. In 1923, Elliot buried a bunch of fake pre-Columbian Native American artifacts on Whedon Island and called the Smithsonian, saying he had a major archaeological find. I honestly have to admire his complete lack of fucks given. He and his wife were frequently written about in the local newspapers as party hosts. On February 4th, 1923, a photo of Mrs. Elliot appears in the St. Petersburg Times. She's holding her tiny pet alligator, Hilarious Harold. She was holding a Gasparilla party on a barge done up like a 17th century pirate ship, and she bragged about how she was close personal friends with Mrs. Warren G. Harding. By the way, if you want to see these images from today's episode, check out the wtfloridapodcast.tumblr.com. But all this success and luxury didn't stop everything from going tits up when the real estate bubble collapsed. In December of 1925, Eugene M. Elliott was indicted for tax fraud. On June 27, 1926, Mrs. Elliott consulted with a lawyer to discuss getting a divorce, charging Mr. Elliott with infidelity and cruel and inhuman treatment. 
Later that day, she fell from the back stairs of her home, fatally hitting her head on the concrete below. The maid and the butler both told the police they'd seen Mr. Elliot throw her down the stairs. Mr. Elliot insisted that was just a tragic accident, but he was still charged with murder. This probably would have been a much bigger scandal and a much bigger story had it not been for the fact that on the very same day, it was pushed out of the headlines by a family of four being brutally murdered with an axe, which is just what living with Florida is like. That's another episode, and hopefully I will be getting to it soon. When the time came to take Elliot to court, the state's key witness, quote unquote, failed to appear. The newspapers didn't list who this witness was, but I'm pretty sure it was the maid, who was a black woman named Annie Gadsden. And by virtue of being a black woman in the in Florida in the 1920s, probably would have been very easy to threaten and intimidate into not showing up. Ellie was nolle prost, which basically means it's like you're not acquitted, but you're not guilty. We'll get back to it later. But the thing is, they never got back to it later. He went on to have a successful career in politics. And then he died in 1945. When the newspapers published his obituary, they printed it with a photograph in which Eugene M. Elliot has the smuggest, shit-eating, I murdered my wife and got away with it grin I have ever seen in my fucking life. With all that aside, the story of Eugene M. Elliot does kind of help answer the question, what might have happened to David P. Davis had he lived? Basically, he probably would have taken a real financial hit, but in the end, he would have been fine. Rich white men in the Florida in the 1920s have a real way of ending up completely fine, no matter how badly they fucked up. In spite of its namesake's tragic end, Davis Island continued to be, be built and developed. In 1927, the American Association of City Planners gave Davis Islands its first prize. Whiting and Stone continued to see the islands built as they were in it too far to give up. The islands themselves weren't a bad idea, it's just that mostly some very bad business decisions went into their creation. You can see that all this in the fact that today, Davis Islands remains some of Tampa's most valuable real estate. Davis Shores, however, didn't fare so well. It had only a handful of its smaller buildings built, and so construction never even began on its more ambitious projects. As for Lucille Zaring, she wouldn't be single for long. In 1927, she married the Italian Duke Fabio Carafa d'Andria and gained the title of Duchess. The marriage didn't last long, though, and they divorced in 1930. In the years afterwards, Lucille would still insist on being referred to as the Duchess Carafa d'Andria, even after the Duke had remarried and another woman became the Duchess. After that, Lucille just kind of fades away into history. She got remarried at some point, had two sons, got another divorce, and was at some point working as a waitress in a coffee shop, but it remains unknown where or when she died. In 1953, David P. Davis Jr. was able to visit the islands that his father never saw completed. He had few memories of his father instead of the islands. It's like trying to piece together the vague fragrance of a hazy dream. And that's the story of David P. Davis and Davis Islands. If you want to support me and welcome to Florida, you can always just like and subscribe, but you can also support me on my Patreon, WT Florida Podcast. That's W-T-F-L-O-R-I-D-A Podcast, which should start getting exclusive content soon. Right now, we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and I'm working on getting onto other platforms, but it's weird and confusing. If you want to leave me a message or suggest what other platforms I should get onto, you can reach out to me and see photos from today's Photoshop on wtfloridapodcast.tumblr.com. So yeah, stay strange and enjoy.